Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and I speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. We would like to honour the traditional custodians of the land where this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I'd like to honour the elders of the traditions of yoga, which we share with you on this day. Tēnā Hello to you all. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I am well and excited to be speaking with you. Things are a little bit nervous here in Melbourne today. As I record this, we are potentially looking at another lockdown. We'll see. If it does happen, hopefully it'll be short and sharp and possibly even over by the time this episode comes out. Let's see how well this ages. We are very excited to be sharing today's episode with you Now that we've said we're branching out from yoga-themed episodes, but we really think that the work that Dee DeSalt is doing is quite interesting, and she's working with a side of yoga that has been relatively unexplored in the West. Dee is an internationally known yoga teacher, sensuality coach, and is the author of Ganja Yoga Book. She also promotes anti-racism work, so we're very interested to get her perspectives on everything from yoga, cultural appropriation, the racism inherent in the war on drugs, and much, much more. We know this is a topic that people may have strong opinions on, and we would love to hear from you. You can comment on our website at podcast.flowartist.com or join us on Facebook in the Flow Artist Podcast group. Let us know your thoughts. All right, let's get into our conversation with Dee Dussault. All right, Dee, well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. We're so excited to get the chance to speak with you. Perhaps we could just start with you telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Yeah, so I'm from a small town in Ontario, Canada. So I grew up a few hours outside of Toronto, and that's where I started my practice in the city of Toronto. But I've been living in California now for almost 10 years and definitely loving it here. And so what did you discover first, yoga or ganja? I actually discovered yoga first. I was a a teenager. It was 1995, which I guess reveals my age somewhat. But my mom got me a VHS of yoga and I got really into it. I memorized it. I finally felt like I found a physical practice that was good for sort of a clumsy person. I wasn't really athletic. So yoga gave me a chance to, you know, find something that had no competition. There was no teammates, you know, kind of demanding you do a good job. It was all very internalized. So I really appreciated that. And then I actually didn't get into cannabis until I was 27. So 12 or so years later. I so identify with the not really being sporty and then discovering yoga and like finding a practice that just helps you feel good in your body and to move and It's not about competition. It's not about coordination. It's just kind of about being with yourself and learning about yourself. Definitely. I love that aspect of it. And, you know, here in, of course, the West, all around, you know, the world, yoga has become diluted and it has that little bit more of that athletic and competitive and showy nature to it. But I think, you know, practitioners who really study the tradition know that there's just so much more to it than that externalized form. And so, Would you like to talk a little bit about the history of Ganja and yoga? Oh, yeah. So it's a topic I'm super passionate about. I started my own personal, you know, teaching of Ganja yoga or cannabis enhanced yoga in 2009. And at the time when I researched it, there weren't any other Western yoga teachers publicly offering it. So it felt kind of radical and there was, you know, some courage involved. But 
Luckily, my mom smoked cannabis, so I didn't really have to worry about her approval. But, you know, some yogis had some criticism, not not a lot. But the more I learned about it, the more I, you know, came to understand that yoga and cannabis have a very long, you know, thousands of years long relationship that ancient yoga is said to even have been brought you know, to India from the, the people who wrote the Vedas, the Scythians who came to the Indus Valley or the area we call, you know, India or South Asia. When they, when they brought, when they, I guess, colonized is sort of the word we would use now, but when they invaded or came to the Indus Valley region, they brought cannabis with them, you know, according to this cannabis historian named Chris Bennett. So the people who wrote yoga, who wrote the Vedas are the same ones who brought cannabis to the region, which, you know, we're talking several thousand years ago. And there's some scriptures in the Vedas or the ancient yoga texts that mention, you know, this, they don't use the word cannabis, so nobody can be a hundred percent sure, but a fragrant plant that gets you high and is green. So most people, oh, yeah. hot, so it sounds, <laughs> sounds like weed, right? <laughs> yeah. So when I stayed in India, I was in Rishikesh and I was staying like in an ashram there, like right on the bank of the Ganges. And there were a lot of sadhus who kind of stayed on the riverbank. And then there was kind of the ashram community and in my experience, it seemed like two really different paths. Like I never saw the sadhus inside the ashram and I didn't really see the ashram kind of staff interacting with the sadhus. So I'm kind of interested to know what thoughts people have expressed to you about this and whether that quite surface impression of it being like two different paths to devotion or to enlightenment or however you want to see it, intermingling. Yeah, that's a great question. I haven't actually been asked that one before, so that's really unique. And definitely yoga has multiple paths or multiple lineages. You know, there's the Vedanta tradition of yoga, which is much more this idea that, you know, divinity or, you know, unification with with God or with, you know, the universe is something sort of more outside of us that we strive toward. And then the Tantra yoga tradition has this sense that, you know, we don't have to do anything different. We don't have to necessarily go to a, a you know an ashram to experience divinity. So within yoga, you know, a lot of western yoga has that vedantic lineage, but the sadhus who are sitting along the banks of the Ganges River in India, they may be practicing this more sort of tantric tradition where really nothing is considered good or bad in this type of yoga. There really isn't any sort of dogma around right and wrong the way, you know, most of our understanding of spirituality has and so, you know, if, if, a, if a substance helps you to, you know, connect to your, your higher self or to, to God or whatever you want to call it, then in the Tantra path, then the use of that substance is allowable. Of course, everything has to be mindful because it, you know, there, there is the trap of addiction, which we can't ignore, you know, any substance, most substances have a potential to be abused. So it doesn't mean that every single person in the world needs to go smoke all the cannabis without, you know, mindfulness, but just to say that it is a valid spiritual path or a valid yogic path. And so I'm not sure if this is your scope as a teacher or something that each individual takes on as part of their practice, but how do you ensure that like the practice is true to the traditions of yoga and not a bunch of people sitting around getting stoned? So what we do to ensure that it's more about the meditative or mindful or sort of, you know, internal aspect of it is to de-emphasize, you know, not yoga postures. We definitely do postures, but they're not the really showy, advanced, challenging, you know, postures that can stroke the ego or 
you know, potentially cause injury if you're in the altered state from cannabis. So we really focus more on kind of the, the sort of yoga your grandmother might do or, you know, more about really chill, mindful movements. So we don't really want people to be, you know, doing athletic or, you know, dangerous postures that can kind of pull them out of their inner experience and more into kind of this, I don't know, competitive or potentially dangerous place. We really want to ensure people are, you know, taking the awareness and the mindfulness, all of that other side of yoga beyond the physical. And really, we emphasize that and the breath just as much as the poses. And so maybe you could just give us a little insight as to how a Ganji yoga class unfolds. Sure. Yeah. So the first half an hour is what we call a stoner social. So people are invited to trickle in anytime in that period. So if the period's 7 to 7.30, some people come right at 7. Someone who is maybe new to the class or new to cannabis. We get a lot of people who is first time use, using to use cannabis, but because it's a yoga environment, they feel safe. And likewise, we also get a, a pretty good number of people new to cannabis who already, I'm oh, sorry, who new to yoga who already use cannabis. So it's really great to get these different newbies. But yeah, we have this half an hour period and then we start the yoga around 7.30. And before we start the yoga, we usually do a, an intro circle where everyone has a chance to go around and say their name and what brought them to class. And, you know, people can pass if they want to, if they're high and feeling self-conscious, but most people speak and it really creates a safe space, a container, you know, where you get to hear everybody, you get, we get to all kind of contribute to the space. So before we go to our mats, we've smoked weed, you know, someone's probably passed you a sativa or an indica, you know, people's names, where they're from. So you really feel, you know, a lot more safe to kind of go into this internal meditative or sort of hypnotic space with the cannabis. And have you sort of got any strategies in place to perhaps minimize any potential adverse effects, especially if there's someone who might be, I guess, new to cannabis and might... And new to yoga as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so people who are new to cannabis, we have a sign when you enter that says... You know, if you're first, if you're a first timer, you know, start low and go slow. You can always add more as you go, which, you know, speaks to itself. It's essentially, you know, because if you look at me, I'm a seasoned cannabis user. I might smoke a half a joint to myself, right? But a first timer should take just one puff or maybe two. And we'd like to have an, a variety of consumption methods available too. So there's vaporizing and sometimes low dose edibles or even topicals, which are applied on the skin and don't actually change the consciousness. So people can still use plant medicine without getting high. So we'd like to have a variety of applications or methods available. So it's dosing and it's giving people a different ways to consume. And then again, just that environment of a really safe space. And I always like to have a volunteer handy so that if, if for whatever reason, you know, if someone overconsumes, I don't like to say the phrase overdose since you can't actually overdose on cannabis. It's, you know, you can't, you can't die or anything. So we be really, you know, mindful with our words and, and call it over, over consuming, which does happen. And it's very uncomfortable if you take too much cannabis especially in a new environment, even if the environment's really relaxed. So by volunteers available, if, if someone needs, you know, a water or a blanket or someone to sit by them, it hasn't happened often, but occasionally someone has taken too much and just needs that, that person by their side. I could imagine as well that a lot of people who'd use cannabis medicinally would be people who'd have like quite serious illnesses, like people with cancer or maybe people with AIDS or people dealing with chronic pain who might be taking other medications as well and also would be dealing with some really intense stuff in their lives and 
that kind of intersection of people who've got a lot of health stuff going on, people who've got a lot of emotional stuff going on, people who might be taking other medications. It's quite a lot. Do you like have an intake form with people or is that people's own responsibility or what kind of strategies do you have in place knowing that probably there will be people there who do have some quite serious health stuff going on? Another great question. Yeah. So I do have an intake form for my private clients, but for the public classes, I don't, although it's a great idea. I could see the benefit. Here in California, so many people use cannabis. And I think as legalization continues, more and more people will, of course, around the world. And so, you know, the average person in our population who's coming to yoga, yes, is probably, whether they use cannabis or not, they're probably dealing with chronic pain or sleep issues, or like you mentioned, mental health issues, or, you know, trauma from childhood. It's just, you know, incredibly rampant, right? That we have all of these issues as a population that's imbalanced. So, you know, in general, you know, we, we do need to be really mindful of the different things people are bringing into the yoga studio with them. All of our clients and students will have a variety of you know, things that they're working with. And then of course, adding the cannabis element, additional element, there's even more a need for a, you know, safe set and setting, which is why we do that sort of opening circle and have the time for people to kind of mingle and really feel one with the space. We don't want them to, you know, run in at the last minute and throw their mat down and start a practice, you know, get a, get high and start a practice. We want them to kind of savor and get used to sort of the environment and to meet myself and the teachings. But I, I you know, I want to ensure that, you know, you know, your listeners and in general, the population knows that, you know, cannabis users don't necessarily have more issues maybe than the general population. I mean, they, many of them are using cannabis to manage chronic pain or PTSD or ADHD or a number of other issues, but, but the rest of the population has those issues too. They're just not yet able to use cannabis to manage them. So I think in general, the population at large is imbalanced and, you know, really could use extra care if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess the situation is really different here in Australia and medical marijuana is pretty new here. So I think there's two dispensaries in Melbourne and those populations that I just mentioned, people with chronic pain and people with chronic issues are the only people at the moment who are allowed to access these plant medicines here in Australia. Mm. Legally. That makes sense. So do you- Sorry. So do you think there might be a a cliched perception of the Ganja yoga participant? I think it's, yeah, a cliched perception. Having, you know, been teaching Ganja yoga since, I guess, 2009, so quite a while now, you know, I've met every type of person. And yeah, there's the hippie and the tie-dyed shirt, for sure. But that's a very small percentage of who comes to my classes. It's often, you know, the soccer mom with her CBD vape pen you know, or couples come for date night. It's, you know, here in, in San Francisco area, it's just your, your tech worker, you know, your, I don't know, like, I don't, I just, I don't want to say normal, but just sort of like, you know, not, not necessarily hippie, you know, maybe more health conscious or more open-minded than average, but as the brand and other forms of cannabis enhanced yoga spread across, you know, the country and even into Mexico and Canada and different countries, you know, I think we're really going to be able to see that, you know, these stereotypes are really dated and more and more people are coming out of the closet, or I guess the phrase is coming out of the green closet, you know, to own and to acknowledge that they use cannabis, whether it's medicinally, spiritually, or even recreationally. And there's this whole movement here to sort of say, yeah, my use, I don't have a medical condition. It's recreational. I use it for pleasure. And that's okay too, right? You don't, you know, it's not only for, you know, medicine, right? We have kind of a 
a little bit of a anti-pleasure attitude sometimes. So some people now are just saying, yeah, recreational use is also a valid form of cannabis use. It doesn't have to be medical or, or ritual or spiritual. So definitely as more people are allowed to use cannabis, then our, you know, our stereotypes will begin to shift. And do you find that there's usually a pretty diverse mix of ages and cultural backgrounds within each of your classes? Yeah, definitely. And the neat thing is I get more men, I think, than maybe standard yoga studios. And I think, you know, the cannabis element brings, you know, guys in maybe who, you know, some guys really are intimidated by yoga. They, they fear they're not flexible enough or that it's only for these like thin dancer women. So, you know, that's unfortunate because yoga really is for all genders, all races, you know, all body sizes, all ages. And we definitely do get a, an older crowd as well. I mean, the average person is still probably in their 30s or maybe 40s, but we do get people in their 60s, which is really cool. I once had a man who just recovered from a 10-year coma come to a class. Yeah, that was, you know, a, definitely a client I'll always remember. Yeah, so we, we get all kinds of people, which is is really cool. And, you know, something that I want to, you know, I'm, I'm late to the game, admittedly, but it's never too late to do better is I really want to work with and reach out to South Asians, you know, Indians and people who are maybe starting to talk about cannabis plant medicine in India, or even South Asians here in North America, who are doing this work and begin to collaborate and elevate people from the you know, yoga tradition who are doing the work because I am a white woman. I'm not sure if your listeners can see that or whatever, but, you know, and I have had a lot of privilege as a white woman. And, you know, if I had been a a person of color, a black woman or an Indian woman, I might not have had as much career success. You know, New York Times might not have done a story. So I really want to acknowledge the privilege and begin to amplify other people and collaborate with other people who are doing this work. And have you got a lot of energy back so far or like what feedback have you received from people from like a South Asian background? Well, I've had a couple of South Asians in my classes. So, you know, definitely, you know, they love it. And, you know, I have a longtime student of over 10 years who's Indian, Canadian Indian. And so I haven't had any sort of negative feedback per se. Most recently on Instagram, maybe was the first where, you know, there are conversations, of course, in the yoga community about cultural appropriation in general. Cannabis enhanced yoga isn't necessarily worse than any other type of yoga. We're all, all yoga teachers are to some degree appropriating. And so the, the appropriation conversation sometimes brings in things like acro yoga or beer yoga and uses these, you know, kind of to criticize that, you know, Westerners and white people are sort of taking pieces of yoga and then really, you know, whitewashing it. And so someone, you know, did reach out to me this week and said, you know, could you start to educate your followers more on appropriation within yoga and, you know, just different things like, you know, for example, you know, namaste traditionally does not mean goodbye, right? It does. It's not usually done at the end of a yoga class here in the West. For some reason, we, we got that tradition going in India. It's meant more as hello. And so just things like that to be aware of, you know, or if you're chanting, you know, to pronounce, pronounce things correctly because Sanskrit is a, scientific language, right? And so just to really honor and appreciate yoga versus appropriating. And so for me, that would be things like teaching more about the chakras and, you know, the energy bodies and the philosophy and, you know, less about posture, you know, I'm already kind of doing easier, more accessible yoga postures, maybe than conventionally taught. But it's really time for all of us yoga teachers to start integrating more of that spiritual philosophy into our classes. Yeah, absolutely. And just to continue the conversation beyond cultural appropriation into like racism and white supremacy in general, would you like to speak a little bit about the connection between racism and the war on drugs and especially the prohibition history of cannabis? 
Yeah, definitely. So, you know, here in the U.S., the history of cannabis's uh, prohibition is, in you know, inextricably tied to racist policies, whether it was anti-Mexican policies and attitudes, you know, where people were starting to fear, you know, after the war and, and financial insecurity, fearing these, you know, migrant workers were coming and, you know, quote, unquote, you know, stealing our jobs was the perception. But it's interesting because, Mexicans got a simultaneous stereotype of stealing the jobs, but also being lazy and, and using cannabis. So this whole stereotype started that cannabis makes you lazy, but it's also weird because at the same time, if they're so lazy, why are they here working? Like it just, it doesn't make sense. It's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, racism doesn't usually make sense, but you know, uh, just after that, a couple of decades later during the civil rights movement, black people were meeting in coffee shops and, and, the Black Panthers and the like were obviously using cannabis as part of the conversations around, you know, civil rights and at jazz clubs. And again, it was specifically targeted because these communities were using it. I'm not sure if your listeners are aware, but here in the U.S., white people and black people use cannabis at the same rates. And despite that, uh, you know, black people are four times more likely to be put into jail. And then, you know, if you think of the population, there's more white people. So it doesn't make sense you know, that there'd be more black black people in, in jail for the same drug. And, you know, there's quote unquote white drugs like cocaine, you know, which, which have a class element, you know, people of middle and upper class tend to use cocaine. And so it's not, it's not gone after the same way as, as cannabis. So there's all of, you know, this racism and, and that doesn't exist here in the States. It trickles and is informed by other policies like in Australia and England and Canada. We're all sort of, a lot of people look at the U.S. to make their policies, but we're all kind of sharing information and you know, that, that racism, you know, is in every country, whether it's against black people or South Asians or indigenous, we all have, you know, as white people, as, as yoga teachers, we have, well, whether or not we're a yoga teacher, if we're white or, or, you know, we have white privilege or proximity to whiteness, then we really need to look at the racism, both in yoga, in the cannabis world, and then, you know, beyond. And this year, you know, so many important conversations were started and we have to continue that work. And I will just say as well, I did a little bit of research leading up to this interview in Australia and the statistics here are really bad as well. Like 80% of Indigenous people who were caught with a small amount of cannabis would be pursued in the courts versus only 50%-ish of white people caught with the same amount. So mm. it's definitely very disproportionate here as well. Yeah, it's really a tragedy, but you know, we have to talk about it. It's our responsibility to educate and you know, talk to our law, our lawmakers, our policymakers, you know, and especially if we use cannabis to really realize what a privilege it is, you know, that, that I can make my career based on cannabis when, you know, down the block, someone could have their life ruined for the very same thing, you know. The yoga landscape is changing rapidly and it's never been more important for teachers to establish their own autonomy and create new business opportunities for themselves. However, if you've never had to set up a website, a booking system, online classes or a mailing list, it can be really overwhelming. Where to start and what is the best system to use is the main question that our mentees ask. And after a lot of research, we recommend Offering Tree. We appreciate that they offer options for tiered pricing, donation-based classes and integrate with Zoom. And we're now Offering Tree Ambassadors. Use the link offeringtree.com slash flowartists, which is all one word, to receive a discount of one month free or 15% off their annual plan. We'll be sharing more about the people and philosophy behind Offering Tree in the future, and we'll put this link in our show notes. 
But we also wanted to just get in and share this offer now because I know that navigating the technology side of running a yoga business has been a challenge for so many teachers. And so this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but it's something that I've I've thought about it both in terms of like self-soothing and self-pacifying aspects of yoga, and it would absolutely translate into cannabis use as well. Have you experienced in yourself or in others that these soothing, calming practices like yoga and cannabis actually diminish agency to make meaningful change in life sometimes? Like I guess one everyday example would be someone who doesn't like their job and would just come home and do these practices to kind of get back to a better state of mind at the end of the day and just kind of cruise through life like that rather than looking for a different job. Fascinating question. I mean, yeah, there is some degree of truth, perhaps, to, you know, cannabis having demotivation attributes. It doesn't apply for everyone. Like, I'm I'm really motivated on cannabis. But yeah, it can kind of, you know, yeah, it might for some people make you feel like, yeah, I don't want to go to that protest, or I don't want to go, you know, have a conflict with my boss. Let me just, you know, get high and, yeah, kind of tolerate it when, you know, I, I could see where, 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 you know, kind of where you're going and how yoga could also have a kind of similar pacifying or demotivating element. I, I, I've never thought of it before. So I'm sort of trying to, you know, I'm thinking of Gandhi and I'm thinking of people who were yoga practitioners who did so, you know, kind of the opposite, who did so much, had so much change so I'm wondering, yeah, I, I really can't, I don't know if I can speak to it. That's a pretty boring answer, but I, my mind is oh, just I guess it's a I'm- very, it's an individual question as well. And maybe just a like looking into your own life and kind of seeing, is this having a positive effect for me over time or is this actually having. Or is this just a coping strategy? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. 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 And oh, I guess really? there's an element of that as well, where it's like, okay, if I just need to cope at this stage, mm. then that's. That's, That's all fine. I can do. Yeah. And then in mm. the future, you might get to the stage where you're like, okay, now I have the resources to make change. Mm. Definitely. I mean, I, I'm, tr- I'm thinking of the times where I feel the most stress in my life. And I, I definitely, I would say in those times, my cannabis use increases, it goes up. And I, and I, you know, I think I am using it medicinally in those times, at, you know, as to help me cope, right. To kind of, as an anti-anxiety or a balm, right. To kind of reduce my tension. And then times where I'm feeling, you know, the least stressed, you know, maybe I'm camping or, you know, out in nature, you know, I don't really use weed that often, you know, maybe once per day when we, at the end of the hike or after dinner, you know, like a little celebration, but I, I don't feel the craving as much. So it does definitely al- allow us to cope with our imbalanced world and how each person does that will be so individualized that it would really be, you know, I, w- I would, I would really avoid sort of judging anyone else's use of cannabis. I, I really you know, that's something I've had to let go of. Cause I, you know, I grew up in the eighties with prohibition and propaganda and we had frying eggs, like in an egg, you know, on a, on a commercial when I was a kid that said, you know, we, cannabis would fry your brain. So <laughs> I have so much conditioning to, to overcome myself that I can sometimes, you know, still be judgy and think, well, that's too much cannabis use, but really it's so individualized and I don't know what's going on in someone else's mind. And so I, I try to just stay in my lane and, you know, stay aware, right? Because, you know, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, it definitely can be abused. It can be used mindlessly or unconsciously. And I've had times where I myself have used it that way. So, you know, I think that that's really key. So I'm just wondering, have you ever sort of maybe noticed in others without sort of, I guess, you know, we don't want to get into that 
place where we're, I guess, judging people, but do you sort of ever maybe notice someone might be going a little bit overboard? And if so, what would you sort of say or, or do about that, if anything? Mm, you mean like at a class maybe or something? Yeah, yeah. So say you just had concerns perhaps. I yeah. Know. You're seeing someone week after week and it mm. seemed like they were getting in a not-so-good relationship. Mm. Yeah, totally. Like a, a first-timer that I don't know that well, I would be more reluctant to kind of say anything because I don't, I don't really know them. But if I knew that they were nervous or, you know, they indicated that, you know, then and, and I saw them kind of reaching for even more weed, I, you know, I, I, I might come and just sort of sit by them and be like, how's the weed hitting? Oh, you know, it's pretty strong. I don't know if you want that other toke. You want to wait and see how the first toke hit? Like, <laughs> without being patronizing, kind of, you know, empower mm. them to make their own decision, but suggest, you know, as an expert, you know, you might want to wait before you take more or that would be more out of a concern of overconsumption and feeling uncomfortable. But yeah, if, if week after week I was seeing a person, you know, what, what looked to me like overconsuming or, you know, be, not being moderate, not being mindful, I'm not sure it's my place necessarily. Cause again, they may have chronic pain and they need three joints mm. to, to hope, like we said, but you know, it, it doesn't hurt if, if I'm becoming, you know, if they're coming often and I'm becoming, you know, closer with them to just sort of check in without judgment or shame and just sort of say like, Hey, I noticed you can handle a lot of weed or I noticed this, how, like, what's that about? You know, with, with more of a curiosity and just sort of mm. to, to see if they're reflecting and, but it, you know, I, I don't really know that it's, it's my place to, to speak to it more than that. And again, the culture here is really different than in Australia. So perhaps it would make more sense there where, I mean, California is sort of, you know, even before it was legal here, it was a very weed full place, you know, the, the, the hippies and stuff in the sixties. And so it is kind of more embedded in the culture here. So it, it would feel a little inappropriate or, or, or strange, but in a place where it's just becoming medical and becoming legalized and it's not part of the culture, I think then you can sort of, I think have a little bit more of that parental position, if that makes sense. And I think it is something that even as a yoga teacher, we might sometimes see someone diving into like a really, I don't want to say the word advanced, but a very athletic variation of a, a pose that we might feel like they're not quite ready for and we're worried about their safety. And at the same time there, it's that balance of, okay, this person is in my class, so I am somewhat responsible for their well-being and at least creating a safe space for them. But I don't want to say that pose is not for you or you're not ready for that or I mm -hmm. guess usually when I'm trying to teach, I will give different options and different variations and maybe some some guidelines like, oh, if you're feeling steady here, you might like to try lifting this leg up or something like that. But I think as yoga instructors, if we fully take on that responsibility to tell everyone in our class what is safe for them and what is not, then that's kind of a bit of overstepping and a bit of mm. taking away people's agency to learn more about themselves within the practice, which I think is more powerful as an instructor to give people the tools for self-discernment rather than take on that responsibility to decide what's right for everyone in their class. Yeah, I agree. We have such a paternalistic, you know, kind of patriarchal, military, you know, aspect to our cultures. And so it's good, I think, to step into that more feminine and intuitive and, you know, letting people have their more 
internalized and less sort of structured from outside, but more felt from inside type experience. But it's a delicate dance, like you said, because similarly, if I saw someone kind of taking an intermediate posture, you know, there is this kind of internal push-pull as a yoga teacher, like where do I step in and where do I give space? And I guess just another question that's kind of occurred to me, have you ever had a situation where I'm not sure what your policy is at the end of the class and whether people drive home, but have you ever had a situation where you're like, ooh, I don't think you are in a good state to be going back out into the world and especially out onto the road. Have you had to kind of have some aftercare with people? Yeah, definitely. So it has happened. So after the yoga class, we have another 30 minute social. So you really have time to, you know, sober up, I guess is the word or, you know, re-enter ordinary consciousness. And for some people, that's not enough time. So we had a guy who actually fell asleep during Shavasana during the yoga. And then the 30 minutes sort of social afterwards, he was still sleeping. We let him sleep. And then, you know, people were starting to leave and trickle out and, you know, me and my volunteer wanted to go home. And so we turned the lights higher and the music and we're trying to kind of wake (laughs) him up. Right. And then we sort of had to eventually sort of you know, touch him and and shake him, which I was so, you know, I I hate to be just, you know, I startle easily. So I'm really aware of not wanting to startle anyone who's in an altered state or, you know, on weed. But he kind of woke up and he he said himself, he's like, I'm sorry, I had an edible before class and edibles take a while to kick in and they can be deceptively strong. So I I don't recommend them necessarily. Or if we use them in my classes, it's always like a, a micro dose, a very small dose, but he did his own before arriving. So it put him out. I mean, it can really knock you out. They're great for sleep and really embodying great for yoga at the right dose, but he took too much. And so we had to wait with him. At first we offered to call him a lift and I would just pay for the lift. It's just not worth even if it's 50 bucks or anything, it's just, it's always better to call the lift for people. And I, I do the teacher training where I train other people on how to be cannabis enhanced yoga teachers. And we talk about this and and safety. He didn't want to lift. He wanted to wait it out. So we waited with him until he felt ready. And then, you know, we trusted him to make his decision, but it was kind of like, shoot, like, is he going to be, cause it can be groggy for four hours. Are we going to stay here for four hours with this guy? Like, I'd rather just call your lift and go home, please. But he didn't want to leave his car here and all that stuff. So, you know, it was kind of a, you know, it's it, nothing really bad happened, but it did sort of put in my head like, wow, I'm really glad I have a volunteer too. Cause you know, just being at the end of a class with a sleeping man, you know, it's just always good to have a volunteer, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cause it's not just their safety. It's also your safety. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so like, Medical marijuana is really new in Australia and a really established industry in California and in the States. Having seen the industry grow in the way that you have, what thoughts do you have? And I also see that you like actively advocate buying from BIPOC women. What power structures have you seen emerging in the cannabis industry as it becomes something underground into something industrialized? Yeah, it's interesting because I moved to California just before the state went legal. And so in the when it was still what they, you know, sometimes call the black market or the traditional market, when it was still in the traditional market, it was actually, it was kind of felt like the Wild West again. You know, I wasn't here in the original Wild West, but it uh, felt like that kind of like anything goes and there's no real policies yet. And it, it was very exciting. And then of course, it's so great that the state legalized because now people won't be thrown in prison for possession. And that's important considering, you know, the racism we already discussed. But now that it's legalized, I mean, there's other benefits too. So maybe I'll continue with the the benefits. Another one is that, you know, what it says on the package 
is, you know, verified. If it says it's 10 milligrams on the edible, it's 10 milligrams. You know, we can have this sort of licensing and, and you know, accountability. And that way uh, the customer can know, you know, they're really getting the terpenes or the cannabinoids that, you know, was advertised. So those are really important, you know, having that, that testing, testing for mold, testing for contaminants. You know, some people grow cannabis using toxics pesticides and then you're going to be smoking the pesticides that's not good things like that so you know with testing and with legalization we can prevent you know some of that corruption but at the same time with legalization came new power structures as you said and one of those is in order to even become legalized in, in order to even convert from a traditional market whether you're a grower or a you know edibles maker or deliveries service the legal and financial hoops that you have to go through, it's really prohibitive. And it, what it really does is allow, you know, again, mostly white, but, and mostly male, a wealthy investor types who maybe don't even really use cannabis or haven't been working with it for, you know, years to come into the market and open a dispensary, open a delivery service. You know, they haven't been risking their lives when it was illegal, but they can afford to, to pay all the, the expenses. Whereas, you know, a, a traditional farmer, you know, I have awesome, you know, an Asian American farmer friend who, you know, she's been growing in the Emerald Triangle, the, the cannabis growing region, and she's permaculture, you know, all organic, regenerative. She may not be able to afford to become legalized. And so if she doesn't, she has to risk being illegal, not having her products on the shelves, all of this. So really, you know, with legalization, we need to have policies for BIPOC or, you know, Black and Indigenous people of color to people whose neighborhoods have been impacted by the war on drugs should really be the first to be invited to open a dispensary in that neighborhood. People who've been, you know, advocating for cannabis, who've been working with the plant, people of color, women, because these laws are not erected properly, we have to kind of do more uh, grassroots where, yeah, like I post about, you know, buy weed from BIPOC women and maybe give a list of women owned dispensaries or black, black indigenous people of color owned dispensaries. And, you know, we have to kind of go out of our way to find them and shop from them and support them and elevate them. And also, you know, demand that the laws change so that these people are given, you know, a fair chance. Otherwise they're going to be pushed out of the market and more rich white men are just going to get richer. And I was going to say richer and whiter, but just richer. So I'm curious, sort of to change the topic a little bit, I'm just sort of wondering, you know, during this practice of Ganji Yoga, how do we distinguish when an altered state, I guess of any kind, is either clouding or clearing our perception? Or is that actually, I guess, the core of the practice? Because I do feel that mindfulness is quite useful for helping us navigate different, I guess, mental states. Definitely. Yeah. So mindfulness is key. And, and so with regards to using cannabis or, you know, other plants or substances that change our consciousness, whether some examples might be cacao, you know, sugar, wine, some people feel green tea, they feel like a consciousness shift from the caffeine of green tea. Obviously, cannabis is much more potent than, you know, the things I just said. But I always like to remind people like cacao can really change your state, you know, and, and so cannabis is sort of on a spectrum with cacao. It's closer to cacao than it is to like crack, you know, unlike the egg commercials, the frying egg commercials from the 80s, you know, the truth is cannabis is a, is a plant medicine, right? And it has superfood properties, you know, anti-cancer properties, anti-inflammation properties. So numerous, you know, substantially researched 
health properties, which again, doesn't mean it can't be addictive, can't be done mindlessly and can't cloud our awareness. It definitely can do all of those things, but it is a superfood, you know, and we want to remember that. And so, you know, when using it, people ask me often, you know, what strains are best for yoga? And it, you know, that's, that's the fun part. Strains really hit people differently. Even ones that have like a reported benefit, like, oh, this one's going to bring clarity. Well, for you, maybe based on your biochemistry or what you happen to eat that day, that strain might make you tired, right? It might not do what it was supposed to do, you, you know? And so it's a real opportunity to get to know different strains because cannabis isn't like one medicine, right? It's, it's hundreds, if not thousands of sort of med- medis- medic- medicinal parts. So part of the clouding of awareness piece could be that the strain you're using is really suited for sleepiness. It's a great, you know, kind of muscle relaxant, it's, but it might be, yeah, like a little too, they call it couch lock, where you don't really want to get up and do any yoga. And so that wouldn't really be a good strain for you for yoga. And then the other question would be dose. And I think that's an even bigger consideration than strain. It's like, if you do too much cannabis, it's going to be hard to be mindful. It's going to be hard to have that clarity of awareness. So I think really starting with a low dose, you know, one vape hit or two, one joint hit, a five milligram edible at most. And, you know, edibles take up to an hour to to hit really starting low. And then just seeing like, is this enhancing my awareness? Am I feeling kind of more people report? And I, I, I myself feel that cannabis brings a deeper connection to the body. We're so in our heads, even daily life is we call cannabis an altered state, but daily life is that ordinary state we call daily life. It has a lot of stressful, you know, that's not our natural state. Like it's very fast paced. There's a lot of cognitive processing. And so in my daily life, sober, I may not be in touch with my body that well, because there's just advertising and fluorescent lights and so much to do on my to-do list and capitalism. It's, it's hard to be embodied all the time. And so I find cannabis sort of takes me out of some of that periphery mental activity and into my body. And that's why I love it for yoga. But again, if the strain and dose are not correct, then it won't have those healing effects. And so as a facilitator of the session, do you have any particular invitations that you might give people verbally or any cues to kind of help people tap into that deeper level of consciousness and the the stillings of the modifications of the mind that we associate with yoga? If maybe you notice people are getting a little bit giggly or a little bit chatty or just like you sense the energy in the room is quite scattered. Yeah, definitely. And sometimes it does get scattered. I mean, because of the cannabis element and the fact that we all just sort of took 30 minutes and had, you know, not really a party, but a bit more social type music on. And then I switched to this yoga music and I dim the lights and there's never judgment. If someone makes a little giggle, it's no big deal. Nobody, you know, is go- is being disrespectful and kind of, you know, talking and, and you know, ruining the vibe. But there's, sometimes there's like a little giggle or I've heard someone say, this is trippy, you know, just like a little comment. <laughs> it's fine. It's perfect. It's, it's funny, you know, and, and they don't overdo it, right? They just do the one comment and the group laughs and it's, it's, it's part of the experience. But if I do kind of feel, yeah, sometimes the energy is agitated or if anything, the, the main, sometimes energy is like so much excitement because, you know, maybe it's someone visiting California, new to weed, you know, I get people from other countries and, I think there's that excitement energy and maybe a little bit of nervousness energy. But what I really like to do, and a lot of teachers do this, is really make the practice about choice. You know, instead of Simon says, okay, now we're doing, you know, this vinyasa thing and it all has to be at the same time and the same, it looks like a dance or a a military kind of 
the way they all walk together. But I like to introduce like, well, would it feel good to lift your left arm here? Or maybe you want to drop the arm, you know, and, and as we learn more about trauma and, you know, trauma sensitive and trauma-informed yoga, giving people that choice instead of directives where it's more invitational. And of course, some things aren't an invitation. We want people to be safe. It's, you know, you got to keep your leg facing left in this pose because it's going to protect your knee. Well, fine. You know, some things are non-negotiable, but for things that are more negotiable to really let people play and it doesn't have to look like a yoga pose. And like I said, it looks kind of more like the yoga your grandma might do. But I really think that invitational piece is really key to settle the group down and get people more into their bodies. Because now you have to ask yourself, wait, does my arm want to go left or right? Oh, both feel cool. Let's, okay, let's try left. And then you're kind of got that curious relationship with your body. Beautiful. Well, I guess we've got one more question we ask at the end of all of our episodes. So I was just wondering if you could distill everything that you've learned and everything that you teach down to one core essence, what do you think that one thing would be? Oh boy. Do other... Yeah, we save an easy one for last. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say, do other interviewers have like a great answer for this? Because I feel like mine's not going to be that good. Hmm. Well, everyone hmm. says that and then they come up with something absolutely beautiful. So I think it's part of the process. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> you know, because, because ganja yoga is, you know, unconventional, it's, it's avant-garde. It, it takes some amount of courage for some people to admit that they use cannabis, especially that they use it for yoga. There's still judgment. There's still fear that they're cheating or it's a spiritual bypass. There's all of this sort of inner judgment about it. So I think the thing I would say to distill it all is this this idea that there are many paths to the mountaintop, right? And really, we don't need to worry about how other people are getting their way up. We just focus on what works for us. So, you know, with mindfulness and awareness, you can, I, I really think you can trust yourself and trust your relationship to cannabis and trust that you're on the right path. And don't worry about any of the haters. Oh, beautiful. No, and I love it. That's such great advice for, you know, ganja or not. Yeah, trust definitely. yourself. Don't worry about the haters. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for speaking with us today. We're very grateful to have had the chance to finally catch up with you. So, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Dee. So good to talk to you. So good. Thank you, guys. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Dee Dussault. I learned a lot and really enjoyed that conversation, and we would love to hear your thoughts. Things are getting pretty tough in Victoria and New South Wales and many other places around the world, so Joe and I would really just like to offer our love and support to you all. We hope that our little podcast brings you some joy and food for thought, especially if you are in isolation right now. Our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul. You can get his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thank you so, so much for listening. Ka kite anō. Till we see you again, aroha nui, big, big love. Love.